the Blood Covenant. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 8. Okay, Father, we do thank you once again for your word, and we thank you for helping us now as we look in this last hour on Blood Covenant to, to understand a little bit more of the strength of this. We trust you to help us in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. All right, this is the final hour on this uh, overview of the Blood Covenant. This is hour number eight. And uh, we're on still lesson five, uh, basically, but I want us to turn to another scripture that's not on the page, which is Genesis chapter 22. I want you to see now again this, again, uh, familiar, very classic teaching about where God now in this, in this covenant with Abraham that we're part of, I want you to see some of the purpose of God in this situation where God proves or tests Abraham, proves him really, by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. You're familiar with it. So Genesis chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. It says, after these events, God proved Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, again, we could stop at every part of this. If good commentators or theologians, there's so much in all of it because Abram doesn't question, doesn't hesitate, it appears, doesn't do anything but obey. This is, again, what's so remarkable, remarkable about his faith and the strength of relationship and this covenant he has with him. Because now, remember, he just told him, I'm, gonna, I'm asking you to offer your son, your only son. And remember, if we were to jump ahead, what Hebrews 11 says, Hebrews 11, verse 17 and 19, is where it says that Abram so trusted God that he'd already received Isaac raised from the dead in a type. Remember, in other words, it says he's, he knew that to do this after God had promised that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed and be the father of many nations. So it says... The scripture by the Spirit of God that wrote it said in Hebrews 11 17, 11, 17 and 19 that he'd already received his son raised up from the dead in a figure, in a type. So with that in mind, it says, God says, go take your son, your only son, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, offer him there as a burnt offering. Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he split the wood for the burnt offering, then began the trip to the place of which God told him. Verse 4 says, on the third day, everybody say the third day. Third day. They say it's about a 20 and one half hours. It's from Beersheba to Jerusalem, basically. 20 and a half hour journey. It took him three days. All this is, is actually important because of why I want to read Genesis 22 is because, of course, what it's all a type of. It says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And Abraham said to his servants, Settle down and stay here with the donkey 
I and the young man, now watch his faith, I and the young man will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Now he knows, remember, God's already said, go offer your son up. Abram says, wait here. My son and I are going to go worship and we will come again to you. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on the shoulders of Isaac his son, and took the fire of the fire pot in his own hand and a knife, and the two of them went on together. And Isaac said to Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, See, here are the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Wonderful verses, you know. Where is the lamb for the burnt sacrifice? And Abraham said, My son, God himself will provide a lamb for the offering. So the two went on together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there. Then he laid the wood in order, and it just simply says, And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar of the wood. Now, right now, Isaac, if you, if you go back, people say he was possibly, he was at minimum of 25 years old. Some say 36 years old, but I fully believe because of all the other types that we're going to look at that he was 33 years old because Isaac right here is a type of the Lamb of God. He's a type of Jesus Christ. But think about this. It doesn't even speak. We often talk about Abraham's faith, and of course, we'd like to hear mention what about Isaac's faith? <laughs> Abraham's about 120 years old. Anyhow, probably, like I said, 130 years old. And you've got a 30-year-old man who you know is far more powerful. But remember, why did God chose Abram, choose Abram? What's the one, there's one scripture that lists why it says he chose Abram. And it says, because I know Abram that he will teach his children and his children's children after him. In other words, so he knew that whatever this covenant relationship that he had with Abram, that Abram was going to constantly communicate this to his son, that his God was real, and just like God's been real to me, son, he's going to be real to you. So, I mean, think of the faith of Isaac. <laughs> There's not even a mention of him. He just allows himself. You see, Jesus allowed Himself. Well, I may as well jump ahead to this. Moriah, where you go, of course, are the two mountains right there in Jerusalem. And again, uh, reading in commentaries today, just as I was rehearsing some of this stuff again, you know, it, they say, they're, you know, well, it has to be so, but archaeologically proven that, you know, 99% sure that we're the part of the mount, you know, where he did this right here was Golgotha. I mean, because that is that mount, that is Moriah, that whole issue, that whole area is right there in Jerusalem. That's where Abram offered up Isaac, the same place Jesus was offered up. Just like Isaac, just like they had to travel three days, it represents the fact that Jesus Christ died and three days later, they're saying that there's this resurrection that's symbolic. Just like Jesus carried his cross, Isaac carried the wood. You see what I'm trying to say? All of these things are types and shadows. Now, this is important because, again, of what's actually happening here. Um, just like Jesus or Isaac was bound, Jesus was bound to the cross and so on. So he said here, verse 9 again, When they came to the place of which God had told him, 
Abraham built an altar there. Then he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar of the wood. And Abraham, verse 10, stretched forth his hand and took hold of the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he answered, here I am. Aren't you glad he was listening to the Lord? And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him for now I know. Now I know that you fear and revere me and fear and revere God since you have not held back from me or begrudged giving me your son, your only son. Do you notice each case in scripture, your son, your only son? God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. See, this Isaac was the one son of, his, of the promise. Remember, Ishmael was the son of the, of, the, of, of the flesh, a work of the flesh. This is the son of the promise that all of the covenant depended upon. And so here is, this, is Abram's faith being stretched to the inch, but again, just going right through with it. He said, now I know the angel of the Lord, or the Lord God himself said, for now I know that you fear and revere God, since you've not held back from me, or begrudged giving me your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up, glanced around, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering and an ascending sacrifice instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now we're going to stop there, but let me say this, right? Actually, you know, we say Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide, but really the word Jireh means see. And what it really says is the Lord God will see. And what, it's interesting because, uh, you know, even when we t you teach on finances or what have you, everybody says, well, he's Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. But what God provides is an offering and then he sees if you'll offer it. <laughs> if you really want to get to the nitty gritty, which is a big difference. What he provides is an offering. The Lord will provide an offering, but then you have to offer it for the rest of it to come to pass. But watch this now. This is the part, the reason I'm reading this to you, and then we're going to jump ahead here. When you read in, again, good good books like a good Bible college, they will say that this event right here is, they say, possibly the most important event in all Old Testament history. They say, like one of the books I was looking at again today, rehearsing it through something today, they said if you added up all of the important events of the Old Testament, they would all pale in comparison to the strength of what this issue stands for. Because here's something, again, that it just boggles the mind. God is in heaven. Man is on earth. Remember that when man fell in the garden, the leasehold, remember that's the terminology we try to use to help better understand it. The leasehold of the earth was turned back into the hands of Satan. Even 2 Corinthians, the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, Satan, the God of this world, 
has blinded the minds of people lest they should see the glorious light of the gospel. He calls Satan the God of this world. Well, we know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, but Satan is still God of this world. And God had to find a plan for him to legally, say legally. legally. He had to find a plan for him legally to have the right to come and do this is again, see, this is what just upsets religious mind. Well, he's God. He can do anything. Well, no, that's just it. You see, we have no comprehension of how strong this issue, this spiritual laws are, supernatural laws. Only thing that I can call is a supernatural system of jurisprudence that exists. Something that's in heaven, what you bind on earth has to already be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth has to already be loose from heaven. That realm to this realm, here's God, here's man. Man has, of his own desire, you know, he's, he's, he's turned, remember, all the authority over to Satan. Remember how that issue? He didn't, Satan didn't gain power in the garden. He gained authority. God had given man authority. When Satan got man to agree with him, he basically caused him to relinquish. He put him, well, he got man to put himself in opposition to God which basically relinquished his responsibility and caused God's authority to come upon Satan to a lesser or greater degree. Now, don't panic about that statement. But the point is this. God didn't have the legal right. And, you, and again, here I say, I'm going to say it over and over again. But he's God. But he's God. But he's God, everybody says. Yeah. But he's God that works according to covenants and works according to covenant understanding. Again, God will do Nothing. Nothing. Say nothing. God will do nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. What was the job of the prophets? God spoke to them in dreams or visions or in sometimes, very few times, an audible voice. But it was the prophet's job to loose what God said in the earth. Think about that. Man didn't just speak to sinners. I mean, God didn't just speak to sinners or speak to sinful cities. God had to find a man as a mouthpiece to do this. Why didn't God just part the Red Sea by himself? He has to find a man who accepts responsibility and therefore has authority. And God gives him something that's symbolic, this rod. And Moses has to stretch this rod out over the sea. Remember, God said to Moses, take that rod, which is in your hand, stretch it over the sea and divide it. He tells man to divide. Why doesn't God just divide it? Why does a man even have to be involved? Why did, does Moses have to stand on the top of a hill and Aaron and her hold up his hands while Joshua fights in a valley? Hear what I'm trying to say? People, you've got to really get this. There's a something about cooperation <laughs> that's so vital. God works with us according to obedience. And when you talk about obedience, even in the Old Testament, you're talking about things that reflect the nature of of a contract or a covenant where one says, I'll do this for you, and another one says, I'll do this for you. This exchange of authorities, this exchange of gifts, this exchange of weaponry, remember, all these things. Well, I said all that to say this. This passage, if you'll accept or if you can receive what I just said about God not being able to just do anything he wanted to do, again, I'm just telling you what tons of authors say about this being possibly the most important thing that ever happened in Old Testament history because listen to this. God had, I'm just going to say it and then let you deal with it. God had to find somebody on earth 
who was willing to offer up his only son that all the promise would come through so that God could legally offer up his only son. <laughs> like I said, you're just going to all look at me and go, but all I can do is pray that you will catch the depth of that thought. Man had to do something so that God could be released to do something. It's incredible when you really see it. But again, don't take my word for it. Like I said, you go get on the net, get in places, get in some good books. Did you start thinking about it yourself? But see, you have to understand this doesn't diminish God's sovereignty. It adds to his glory. Because again, it speaks of the strength of his devotion and the strength of his connection to his people. But again, so much of the people of God are so ignorant. And then it's like I want to go back to Galatians 4 again. Paul said, Galatians 4.1, and then let me just try to repeat it real quickly, not camp on it. God, please don't let me camp on this. Galatians 4.1 is where he said, now the heir. How many of you are heirs of God? Are you joint heirs with Jesus? Amen. You are, right? Yeah. He said, now the heir, listen to it. Now the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. But he is under tutors, until the appointed time. Now, what that speaks to is in Judeo history. Well, I'll tell you, the best way to illustrate it again is you, in here in England, is if you think about back in the feudal days, big family estate, the lord of the manor, may have had a son who, indeed, everybody, they'd call him young lord because they knew one day he was going to be the lord of this whole estate, right? Everything. He'd be the head of it. However, as long as he was a child, there was no way the father could allow him the responsibility. He could have the run of the house, but he couldn't run the affairs of the house. He couldn't demonstrate the authority of the house because he was a child. But in Judeo history, this, a child was under an, a, a tutor. They were tutored until a time that they passed certain tests. The tutors would then come and they'd have a ceremony and they would present the son to the father and to the family afresh and say today, and it's like, it's exactly like bar mitzvah. Today, your son is a son. Instead of saying today, I am a man, like in what they do in bar mitzvah when they're 14 or 13 and they have that happen. In other words, a tutor would say, he's passed the tests. He's able to handle the responsibility and he would give him back to the father. And from that point on, that boy is now considered a man and he's able to administrate some of the affairs of the house. Paul is saying something so strong. He said, you're heirs of God. Absolutely. You're sons and daughters of God. But as long as you're children in understanding, Jesus said, be not a child, be not, be not a child in understanding. Don't be childish in your understanding. As long as you're children... You differ nothing from a servant, though you're Lord of all. You see, every one of you in here are lords 
that Jesus Christ is Lord of. He's Lord of Lords. Every one of you are kings that he's king of. Romans 5. As many as received the gift of righteousness, excuse me, as, as many as received the gift of righteousness and the something of grace <laughs> shall reign in life by one Christ Jesus. We're called to reign as kings. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. You're the kings and the lords. But as long as you are children, you differ nothing than a servant. In other words, you can run around the house, but you'll never really enjoy the authority of the house until you submit yourself to tutors. Now, guess who the tutor is in this age? Who's the tutor? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will teach you and guide you in all things. We have to submit ourselves to the tutorage of the Holy Spirit. And there comes a day when he sees that there's such a yieldedness, evidently, that he basically will do something very similar. There's evidently some exchange in heaven where the Spirit of God bears witness. <laughs> and the Father knows this one's ready. And so there's more administrative authority that's able to be carried out. So that's a big deal. But here we've got Abraham offering up his only son. And it legally allows God to offer up his only son. That is heavy. That is really heavy. But this is the strength of this covenant action. This is how much God thinks about this. I've found somebody that's obeying me wholly. He's releasing me. I'm releasing him. And this is why Ab to, to be now to be. See, we didn't offer up our son. But this is now if you got to see this all comes now to this Jesus. Here we are. Everybody after Isaac partook of this covenant and none of them had to do what Isaac did or Abraham did. They all got to partake of the blessings of what somebody else did 50, 100, 200, 300 years before. Now, this is what I said like last week where I really felt bad about having to race through the issue with David and Jonathan. But again, let me just rehearse it for a moment and again in your notes go through it. But in David, David and Jonathan cut this covenant, remember, and Jonathan made David swear that not only will you show this kindness, Hasid, to me, but to my seed after me in the days to come. So we see later after the wars, Jonathan dies a horrible death after the wars and Saul is defeated and run out. And David has never forgotten because, again, covenant people don't forget. It makes no difference if the person that you made the covenant with isn't there. If there's people that are the seed of that covenant, please listen to me. If there's people that are the seed of that covenant, a covenant man searches for somebody because it's part of your culture. It's what your life value comes from. A covenant, remember when you, like I said, in the Trumbo book and what have you, it's the whole value of your tribe. It's unthinkable to break a covenant because it's what it's just it's just what life is about. This honor, though we don't understand honor today much. They understood it then. We need a revolution in honor. We need a revolution and a revival in nobility. We need to understand that God's looking for men and women that will be men and women of honor. Men and women who will swear to their owner. Psalm 115, he that's, who shall abide in my holy hill? 
He that swears to, who, he who swears to his own hurt and changes not. Somebody that swears, if they give their word, they keep it. It's a matter of honor. Sometimes, remember, you do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I do the right thing. I'm married to my wife. I do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't mean that I don't feel crazy sometimes, and she may not, but I don't even consider it because I've chosen to reject the wrong and reverence the right. We do the right thing. I get in the flesh and want to get angry back when somebody writes me a foul letter and tells me that I'm the stupidest thing on the planet and, you know, go back to the States, get out of here. I get home. You'd be surprised at stuff I get. But I, and I want to retaliate in the natural, but I don't because it's not the right thing to do. The right thing is to bless and not curse. The right thing is to pray for those that despitefully use you. You have to get past your feelings. Would you please do yourself a favor and quit living by your feelings? My feelings. You hurt my feelings. You know, I wish that somebody just kill your feelings instead of hurt them. You know, you'd, be, you'd be an incredible individual if you just got delivered from your dumb... Anyhow, hallelujah. Moving. Anyhow, moving along. Back on the outline here, Romans, on point B under circumcision seal, I just want to read this, Romans 2, 20 and 29, because it's important. Well, Genesis 17, 11 is again where he says this thing about circumcision. He tells Abram, you are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. But now in this new covenant, what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 right here. I mean, he's, it's as clear as it can be. A man is not a Jew <laughs> if he is one outwardly, if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Hallelujah. So right there, you have to see what he's saying. I mean, it's strong stuff. That's, that, this is why Romans is so powerful. Like I said, Martin Lloyd-Jones taught on it. Remember, like I said, the last 12 years of his ministry in London at Westminster Chapel, for 12 years, he, from 1968 is when he gave up the pastor. For the previous 12 years, from 1956 onward, he never left the book of Romans. I mean, you know, for 12 years. Because it's one of the most spiritual books in the whole book. But the thing is, Paul is saying, listen, you see, today, basically, you see, this is what, you have to be careful because you say it in the wrong people. If they're, uneducated, if they're spiritually illiterate, they'll misunderstand. Do you hear me? If they're biblically illiterate, they would really freak out if you looked at them and said, well, I'm as much a Jew as any Jew in Israel. I'm as much a Jew as any Jew in Israel. Because a Jew is not a Jew in God's eyes now because they're one outwardly. Because what a Jew is, the word Hebrew, where we get the word Jew, means one who's crossed over. Hebrew, Eber, E-B-E-R means to cross over. It means they've crossed over to God's side. So a Jew is somebody who's crossed over to God's side. You're looking at one. <laughs> I've crossed over. Yes. Hallelujah. Amen. I've crossed over to the other side. You're 
Therefore, he brews, he bears. People, those who have crossed over. You see what I mean? So we're blessed with faithful Abraham. They say, well, you're not a Jew. You can't be part of it. No, and that's what Paul said. And Paul, remember, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul knew this better than anybody. He said, if anybody could have lived righteous into the law, he said, I did. I mean, it's an incredible statement to make. And he's the one, again, that was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the, remember, whether in, in the body, other body, he said, I knew not, but I heard words that were not lawful for me to utter. And God sends him back. Jesus Christ taught him by direct revelation, sends him back to bring this revelation of the new covenant. <laughs> you know, and see, I want to read the whole book of Romans and I can't. This is why I want you to, all I can hope is that I'm wetting your interest. If you think I'm telling, you know, because I can't, you know, first of all, I am not Mr. Answer Man. I don't have all the answers. But like I said, if you want to hear more, I didn't, you know, I taught 24 hours in the blood covenant. We got it on our website and stuff like that. But the point is, you know, this, this is a life message here. This is something that you keep going back to forever because it takes just a matter of weeks before you're just reading the Bible normal. And when you say faithfulness, it doesn't, it just means, well, I guess I better be faithful. When you say loving kindness, it doesn't scream at you. See, what I want is every time you see, oh, let me hurry. Let me turn a couple of pages so I can show you something. Get past the seed. Turn, get past the part where it goes to Hasid. Tell me when you get to the page where it says David remembers Jonathan point B. Are you there? Everybody? Everybody there? No. What, tell, cry out what the page number is for others. Page 17. Tell me when you get to page 17. Are you there? I'm gonna, I want you to see another covenant word. This is one that just, I love it, but I just want to see. Now this is, it says, uh, Psalm, see where it says Psalm 23? Psalm 23, right? You all know what Psalm 23 is, don't you? The Lord is my shepherd, right? I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. This is the last verse, Psalm 23, 6. Do you have it on your outline? You see it there? Should be page 17. Page 18. Page 18, okay. This is page 18. Psalm 23, 6. Surely, everybody say surely. Surely, goodness and mercy. Guess what goodness and mercy is? Hasid, the covenant. Hasid. Hasid. Surely, goodness and mercy shall what? Follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, like I said, when I did all these exhaustive word studies years ago, I don't know how I even got to this, but I, I was, they showed me all these, I, and whatever I studied, and they were showing me, it was showing me different words that I need to go back and look at. And one of the words was this word, radap, which is the word that's translated follow. But I have it here, and again, this is where I want you to read it. I want you to see another picture. The word rad, uh, follow is this word, radap, number 7291 in Strong's Court, means to pursue. And let me just read it. To pursue to follow after, to pass away, to persecute. You don't have to read the next part. It appears in the Bible 135 times. Next paragraph. The basic meaning of this verb, this is a direct quote, is to pursue after an enemy with the intent of overtaking and defeating him. In most of its occurrences, redap is a military term. Next paragraph. Used in another sense, redap signifies the successful accomplishment of a pursuit, 
The pursuer overtakes the pursuit but does not utterly destroy him in the case of an army and therefore continues the pursuit until the enemy is utterly destroyed. The word means to pursue until the job is done. To pursue and to pursue. And if they pursued and they've only got halfway done and the army's not completely defeated, you continue to pursue until the army's defeated. It's a metaphor now. If you can see this, the way it's used in Psalm 23, 6, see, it doesn't say, surely goodness and mercy shall follow. What's goodness and mercy? Hasid. It's not following. It's in hot pursuit of you. See, what I'm trying to get you to because when you in the English hear the word follow, you picture a little puppy dog coming along behind, you know. <laughs> this little dog, somebody's following you. There's a big difference between somebody just following you and somebody that's in pursuit of you with the intent of overtaking you and destroying you to the uttermost. But here, it's not God's destructive power that's in pursuit of you. It's God's Hasid. Steadfast love, loyalty, devotion, desire to bless and show himself alive is in hot pursuit of you. Surely, goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life, David said. David had some experience in this stuff, remember. I mean, he was the military man of the whole Old Testament, basically. The, the big chief when it came to, mil to military men, when you study them all. And he said, surely goodness and mercy is pursuing me. I mean, it's pursuing me. I mean, David was, you know, even after he messed up and messed up, God said, these mercies will never leave David's house. The sure mercies of David are forever. Even though he messed up, he said, he's still my man. He's still my man. He's still my man. Don't touch my anointed, neither do my prophet any harm. Remember, all that's about David. All that's about David. And let me just read what I wrote in the midst of this. And it says, so what this is saying is that God is pursuing us with covenant love. Bless God until we're blessed. <laughs> and again, my, my dumb illustration, the only one I ever use is again from the old movie Top Gun. Or any movie that has jet aircraft, fighter jets that are tracking another jet and are trying to get that radar lock on. I mean, I'm a guy, so I like guy things, all right? But I mean, if you can just, you know, if you've all seen those films and they're tracking, and I mean, and just finally they get a lock on and beep, 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 and they can fire the missiles, you know, you know what I mean? If you can try to catch this, see, God's in hot pursuit of you, just hoping if you'll ever slow down enough <laughs> to let him get a lock on, he's going to fire some blessing missiles <laughs> and just blow up all over your life. And it sounds goofy, but it's the truth. I quoted earlier verses that we just, for, we quote, but we don't believe them. The eyes of the Lord are running to and fro throughout this whole earth, searching. I mean, think about what that actually entails, what that actually depicts. The eyes of the Lord are searching. Is there someone I can show myself strong to? What did I say earlier? I was going to remind you about Jonathan and David after Jonathan's death, David says in that chapter in 2 Samuel, is there anyone left of the house of Jonathan that I may show 
kindness to Hasid for the sake of Jonathan, my brother. And this Ziba comes up and says, yeah, there's Mephibosheth, his son. He's crippled. He's out there in the country. David said, get him. David said, get him. I just love it. I mean, I just love it. I mean, I got to, like I said, I'm trying to get to a few things so I can't go back to that. David goes and fetches Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes in, remember, and he comes into the house of David, the king, man. I mean, the king, you know, trumpets blaring, like I said, you know, chariots, just like, you know, the, you know a whole squadron of brand new Rolls Royces in those days, you know. <laughs> I mean, and he brings him in. And Mephibosheth falls on his face to do obeisance before him and says this word. What am I? What is such a dead dog as I? That's the phrase you say, such a dead dog as I come into your house. And David, who represents God here, doesn't even respond to such words. He just says, basically like, basically like the prodigal son and the father, he just says, you restored to him everything that, is, that was his father's. You, and he restored all the land to him. And he said, but Mephibosheth from this day forward will eat at my table forever. Here's this guy that had the dead dog mentality. I don't deserve to be here after all. I'm a cripple. And this is the same situation, like I said last week, that most of the body of Christ is in. They don't understand what Jesus, it has nothing to do with you, Mephibosheth. It has everything to do with Jonathan. David cut this thing with Jonathan. And see, what you have to understand is you will never be worthy to sit at the king's table. Because it, but it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus, your elder brother, who did this for you, who cut covenant for you. He is the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. We are joined to the Lord. We're one with the Lord. When God looks at you, he doesn't look at your unrighteousness. He looks at your faith in he who is righteous and wants to reward you accordingly and have you sit at his table for the rest of your life. Hallelujah. But most Christians are going, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. And I got to tell you, just like David, God totally ignores that rubbish. Actually, it's a slap in the face of God saying, I don't believe in what Jesus did. I don't believe in what he did. And that you ought not do, my friends. None of us ought to do that. So just think about it. That's the word redap. Now turn the page. Let me see where I want to go real quick. You see all these verses, like I said, about mercy. God is actively pursuing us to show us his hasid, his love, his covenant to us as his children. He's chasing us down, longing to show himself strong to us. Again, read all these verses for yourself. Now turn two pages. I want you to get to lesson seven where it says the remembrance of God because I've got to just, I want to see if I can at least get through a few things, just a few statements about this because we won't get to Passover, but I taught Passover in another, in another course, so hopefully you'll, you'll understand Exodus 12. And but I'll tell you what, before I read remembrance, forgive me, I'm sorry, I'm going to back, I'm going to go further forward and I'm just going to read so that we make sure that we have it on the tapes, if nothing else. The fact that Jesus says, this, it, I'm on lesson, I've turned to lesson eight now and I don't even know what page that'll be on. That's probably page 24 or something, all right? But where it says, Jesus, our Passover lamb. Uh, 
not just where it says the covenant meal. I just want to read this. It says the covenant meal. Are you there? The covenant meal was always part of a covenant. It symbolized the agreement and the joining of parties by mutual partaking of the sacrifice animal. The meal normally consisted also of wine and bread. But again, just look. Let's make sure we actually see that this is exactly what Jesus meant so that you have it read in front of you. Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 and 30. This is when they're taking this last supper. And Jesus stops in the middle of this thing and looks at the 12 disciples and says this. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. I want you to keep thinking about that bull that was cut in half that they walked between the halves of. Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, he gave thanks, gave it to them saying, drink ye all of it for this is my blood of the New Testament. The word there is covenant. This is the blood. In fact, many translations just flat say this is the blood of the New Covenant. Now, I mean, you can't get any more clear than that. That this is His blood. We're to take it so that we become one with Him. And I'm telling you, if Abram's covenant was sure, if David's covenant was sure, how much more sure a word of testimony the writers, the apostles say, do we have today? For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin, not atonement. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Underneath that it says, the bread is my body, the wine is the cup of the new covenant. You see the same thing in Mark 14, Luke 22. As I said there, the covenant, the disciples, they understood the strength of what was happening. Again, I'm, I'm hesitant to go there because of time, but again, please right there for yourself, read Exodus 12 afresh then about the Passover so that you can see when they consumed the lamb, they had to consume the whole lamb, not just the parts they liked. Jesus is the lamb. You, get to, you, you need to consume all of him, even the hard sayings, not just the bits you like. Okay, it's not like American Thanksgiving where all you want is the white meat. You need to get served some dark meat too, you know what I mean? You need to eat it all. And remember, it's not just having a lamb in the house. Remember that teaching? It's so incredibly powerful. The lamb could, be, could have been brought into the house and the death angel, the destroyer, could still come in and destroy because the lamb had to be sacrificed, had to be eaten, and then the blood had to be applied. So remember when we teach it, I ask them over and over again, would the death angel have had the right to come into their house, the destroyer, had they had a lamb in the house but didn't sacrifice it? The answer is yes. The destroyer could have come in. What about if they had a lamb in the house and they sacrificed it, but they didn't eat it? Would the destroyer have a right? Yes, he would have. Does that mean God doesn't love them? No. It means they didn't do what was necessary to keep the destroyer out. What if you have the lamb in the house, you sacrifice the lamb, you eat the lamb, but you don't do anything with the blood? Would the destroyer evidently still have the right to come in? Yes. Does that mean God didn't love them? No. It was only when they took the blood and applied the blood that the destroyer wasn't able to come. Now remember today, 1 Corinthians 3, 
2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6 says, Know you not that your body, that you are the temple. You're the house of God today. Today, every one of you are to receive the Lamb of God into your life, the house. You bring the Lamb into the house. And there you're to allow Him to be who He is, sacrificed. You're to have a revelation that He is the sacrificed Lamb, the Passover Lamb, like we have up here, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And then you're to consume Him, and Him is His Word. And then you're to consume and apply His blood, and the blood is His Word. John chapter 6 is where you see that, when Jesus said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. Most of His disciples flipped out and said, who can hear these sayings? And they left him and no longer followed him. Jesus turned to the disciples closest to him and said, Are you also going to leave us? Peter said, Where shall we go? You're the one who has the words that lead to eternal life. And then to them, he said, I'm going to explain to you what I meant. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. Big deal right there. We just read it. But Jesus takes an Old Testament truth that all of them understood the life is in the blood and turns to them and says, what I meant by drinking my blood is I meant applying my word. He likens his words to blood. He makes his spoken word equal to what blood represents, life. They had to apply the blood Today, my friends, if you don't apply the word of God, the destroyer still has the right to come in to your house. Now, that's the Reader's Digest version of that whole teaching. But that's enough to get you started. You need to look at it big time. Now, turn back two pages. I've only got five minutes. I want you to look at one more Hebrew word, this word remember. All through the Old Testament, you'll see that God remembered his covenant. Now, again, this is what I, I want you to catch this, too. It's another little issue that's important. He remembered. He remembered. Now, the word in the Amplified Bible, almost every time you see the word remember, it'll have before it the word earnest. If God doesn't remember. He earnestly remembers. You look up that, and even the word remember, it's not in this part of the definition, but again, part of the TWT says that it always depicts a violent action. God doesn't remember. He remembers. <laughs> There's this thing about him. In fact, now let me just, like I said, with the time I've got left, I just have to read it. To remember, this root is found in the Assyrian, Aramaic, Arabic, and Ethiopic. Oh, the first occurrence of Zakar. The word is Zakar. The first occurrence is Genesis 8, 1, with God as the subject. God remembered Noah. God made a wind to pass over. But come down, like it says here, where I have it in italics and bold. It says, as in these two cases, remember is used of God in respect to his covenant promises. Now, again, see, we can just read that. But remember is a covenant phrase. Every time God remembers, it's speaking to something to do with his covenant. When God remembers, it's because his covenant is there. That's what he's remembering. It says... Remember is used of God in respect to his covenant promises and is followed by an action to fulfill his covenant. Come on down real quick because of time. This marks the history of Israel at every point. And I have also heard, now this is just quoting here, and I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel and I have remembered by covenant and I will bring you out. 
The promise to remember was repeated in the covenant at Sinai. God's remembrance was sung in the Psalms, and the promise was repeated by the prophets. The new covenant promises, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This marks the history of Israel at every point. God remembers his covenant with us to this day. Remembrance always resulted in action. Now again, God earnestly remembers. When God remembers, in one part it says that the word remember always brings with it, it says a concomitant action. What that means is when God remembers, it's not like he goes, oh gosh, yeah, I remember. No, for God to remember is for God to act. Do you hear me? For God to remember is for God to act. This is what God wants. God wants for us to be the same. He doesn't want us to go, oh, let's see. God's word says, yeah, it does. <laughs> no, he wants to go, God's word says, and act with it. Sorry, I'm just getting all like this. I can't stand it. But the thing is, today God remembers also, but what does it say about remembrance today? It says... <laughs> In the new covenant, it says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will earnestly remember their sins no more. He aggressively and violently forgives us. Now we got to stop. I got to stop right in the middle of this. Father, you know, Lord, please help us to dig, just dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this. I pray for every student in the name of Jesus Christ that they would hear so much more than my words that they would hear your spirit, that they would have a hunger to, to search us out and get their own answers, their own questions answered rather with their own study because it will mean so much more to them than my answers. But Lord, please make this something in them that causes them to say, I'm going to study this for the next five years. In Jesus' name, Father, because it's just the biggest issue there is because it covers all the ground. So help us with this, I pray, Father. It's a holy thing, this covenant. You've sworn with, by yourself to it. and You said you have sworn yourself to it. So we trust you. We thank you that today we can cry to you because we have a covenant. We are in covenant with you today. An everlasting covenant. And you are my friend and our friend that sticks closer than any brother. And you are with us and you said you will not, you will not, you will not in any degree leave us or forsake us in any area. Assuredly not. Hallelujah. Please help them see you mean that. You mean that. We ask you to bless us in Jesus name. Amen. If you would like to obtain more teaching material by Rod Anderson, please visit www.prayerforthenations.com or call us or write to us using the contact details on your CD or cassette case.